Hello and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute. It's Monday, July 23rd, and today I'm joined by my SSI colleagues, Nate Fryer and Chris Boland. Both are research professors of National Security Studies. Chris's area of expertise, of course, is the Middle East and North Africa, while Nate is more of a functional functional specialist who's been putting the finishing touches on a massive three-year, three-part research project focused on strategic competition and risk. So, Nate, Chris, welcome. Thanks. Welcome, Good John. to be here. I've asked Chris and Nate to join me today to discuss the potentially earth-shattering events of the last two weeks, during which President Trump sh- uh, traveled to Europe to first attend a NATO summit in Brussels. Uh, then he went on to meet separately with British Prime Minister Theresa May in England. And then finally, he conducted his first one-on-one summit meeting with Russia's President Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. Now, by many accounts, the events of that week, basically from about July 10th until the 16th, were fraught, to say the least. And there's been lots of spleen venting about what the president said or didn't say, and of course, lots of politics involved in all this. Now, we're not going to focus on that today in this podcast. Instead, what what we'd like to do is to move beyond... Uh, the Sturm und Drang, as the Germans would say, of uh, the president, for example, beating up on Angela Merkel in Germany, or the impropriety of complimenting Boris Johnson while being hosted by Theresa May, or whether and how the president uh, sides with President Putin or the intel agencies in this country on Russia's involvement in our 2016 elections. As mentioned, there's been plenty of ink spilled on these topics already. Instead, we're going to use this episode of SSI Live to address what we think the very specific repercussions of a Trump-led rapprochement or reset with Russia and a possible distancing from Germany and and Europe more broadly might mean in terms of policy. Typically, when presidents return from big meetings like what President Trump just experienced, uh, the NSC becomes the National Security Council, becomes the vehicle to uh, take what the president has said and done and develop new policy, new strategy around those new initiatives and then propagate that through the executive branch department and agencies, departments and agencies uh, to begin implementing or developing in some cases what those new policies will be. So this is potentially a very big deal. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of insight into this, and we're going to discuss this in more detail, for the last eight months or so, really since the the launch of the national security strategy back in December and then on its heels, the national defense strategy back in January, I have at least sensed this growing inner executive branch chasm, really, in our approach toward Russia, at least. On the one hand, we have the administration, that is DOD, Department of State, even uh, elements in the National Security Council, saying and doing one thing in terms of competition with Russia – uh, our military posture, arms transfers, sanctions, etc., while the White House and the president specifically sometimes do and say something different. 
And the best example of this, I think, was back in early June, when the president, at the outset of the uh, the G7 summit up in Canada, called for Russia to rejoin the G7. Then just a day or two later, the U.S. Treasury announced new sanctions against Russian individuals and entities. And so if the president returns from these meetings in Europe and is about to uh, initiate some kind of a reset, that could have some pretty significant implications. So that's what I want to talk about today in this podcast. And I think Nate and Chris are well uh, positioned and knowledgeable to discuss this with us. So, Nate, let me turn to you first and what you think might be some of the outcomes associated with a, a changing approach to Russia generated by the president's recent meetings. Sure. So I would, I would uh, first and foremost, I would um, echo, echo your comments um, about the, the, the parallel or, frankly, perpendicular approaches that we seem to be taking um, with Russia. There does seem to be some kind of dissonance between what the bureaucracy is doing and, and sort of what the strategic direction coming from the White House are with respect to the Russians. So I think, I mean, that's the overall, I would say, that's one of the most um, fundamental and potentially disruptive uh, decision-making challenges that we have with respect to Russia going forward. Um, more specifically, I think what's really interesting is that there's a lot of straw men being set up uh, with respect to Russia that I think are, are interesting to explore, at least one very large straw man that's being set up. I mean, in previous work that we did in 2015, 2016 on gray zone challenges, I mean, clearly we focused um, specifically on the Russians and the PRC um, it's sort of the, it's sort of the, you know, pacing gray zone artists in the great power and sort of the great current ongoing great power struggle, right? And, um, aside from the fact that they have very different approaches, they both sort of fall in the gray zone category as it relates to competition with the United States. And, it, and I think what's important from our perspective and frankly a growing sort of acknowledgement on the part of most who understand the nature of contemporary competition in the environment. I mean, I think what everybody understands, um, increasingly, um, you know, is that the, is that this has become a placeholder replacement for armed conflict in a lot of ways. Um, and, and it is exposed, um, in the case of the United States, it's exposed this giant vulnerability that the United States has. I mean, the United States is beholden to a set of very staid conventional traditions and, and, and conventions as it applies to competition with adversary states and, and gray zone competition by and large does not adhere to any of those biases or conventions. So as a result, it, it creates enormous, enormous pressure on the decision making architecture of the United States. So let me just give you a specific example, I think, as it applies to the Russians. So we, we, in the work we did uh, previously, we basically identified that, you know, you know you're being opposed by a gray zone opponent when, 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 three, when three characteristics apply. The first is that there's some form of hybridity involved in it. What we mean by that is that your opponent uses a cocktail of, um, you know, uh, political, military, economic, social uh, pressures, you know, manipulating um, their approach in ways that sort of hits your pressure points uh, in surprising and unexpected ways and in ways that you're not able to kind of contend with. 
the 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 second is that it presents it 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 presents real real hazards to your own conventions right so especially to sort of your defensive military conventions i mean if you're under attack by an opponent using a conventional military it's quite easy to actually respond and in kind um in a way that makes sense but but if you are actually under gray zone attack by an opponent uh it it so confuses and 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 uh and um, undermines your traditional conventional sort of biased way of approaching competition that you really are um, you're very hamstrung in the way you approach it. And then finally, it creates risk confusion. I think risk confusion, I mean, it's the one issue that has been most prominent in my mind with respect to the Russians. And this gets to this idea of a straw man. Risk confusion, the third, this third characteristic of a gray zone threat, risk confusion is this idea that when presented with a very skilled gray zone opponent, uh, they create they create dilemmas for you, wherein the 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 hazards associated with acting against gray zone provocation and the hazards associated with inaction or not acting against that provocation appear to be equally unpalatable and dangerous. Right. So, for example, um, action threatens action threatens escalation that you don't want. You know, unwanted and uncontrolled escalation. Inaction is akin to appeasement, and both of those seem very Unpalatable, but because the latter inaction uh, comes with it some deferred hazard, right? You can put the hazard off. It, it, it in general becomes the default setting or default decision making sort of trigger for U.S. policymakers when confronted with a gray zone actor like the Russians. What I've found recently in the developments with the Russians is that this idea of risk confusion is almost, is almost on, on, um, you know, hyperdrive. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I mean, the straw man that's typically set up by advocates of a, of a closer, you know, warmer um, relationship with the Russians, who are no, in no doubt, and nobody actually doubts this, are prosecuting a very sophisticated gray zone campaign against the United States. What, what you see is the straw man of, you know, there's two choices with respect to the Russians. Either, you know, cozy up to them and accommodate the Russians or fight some, you know, very costly war with a nuclear power that could obviously spin out of control and become a disaster. And I think therein lies sort of the, the frankly, the, the fallacy um, that, that, that we're dealing with right now is that somehow competing or campaigning against the Russians um, for position to defend many of our interests around the world, and especially our interests as it relates to our closest allies in Europe, that somehow, you know, active competition and gray zone campaigning against the Russians is ultimately going to lead to some kind of, you know, uncontrolled escalation into a war that none of us want. And I think that that is that 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 is paralyzing us on some level into inaction inside the bureaucracy and is being used by advocates for a much warmer approach to the Russians. Um, it's being used by advocates for that approach to to, to basically advance a, what what is a policy position of the United States that will in fact be very counterproductive. Nate, let me ask you, let me interrupt you for just a minute now. One of the things, among others, that uh, we heard at the, the press conference between President Trump and President Putin, uh, one of the things I heard, I came away with, was what sounded like the beginnings of a reset policy, right? The President, President Trump wanting to work uh, with President Putin on this litany of, of crises, of issues, of problems, both geographic and functional. 
what do you think, first of all, did you hear that? And then secondly, what do you think the implications of that might be for this gray zone competition? So I did think, I did think that that was actually, that did come through in the press conference, that that was actually the language or the rhetoric of the, of the press conference. However, given the performance or the, you know, given the past track record and performance of the Russians to date, um, especially, you know, over the last, let's say, over the last 10 years, starting, you know, picking an artificial, you know, past point of 2008 in the, in the sort of gray zone war prosecuted against Georgia, which is really in large measure a dry run against the rest of Europe in my mind. You know, based on the Russians' performance, I think a reset is 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 not necessarily in the cards. And instead, what's going to happen is there's going to be a false one-sided reset where because we've exposed vulnerability and because we have been hesitant and deterred to act because of this concept of risk confusion, um, all gains and advances will be in favor of the Russians. It'll create irreversible circumstances on the ground in Europe and elsewhere around the world with respect to our position vis-a-vis the Russians. And as a result, we'll be, you know, forced to accept irrevocable changes in our freedom of action that, that any, you know, clear-eyed strategist that has a view of how and where, you know, how and what, what role the United States should play in the world would recognize that being put in that position will be you know, somewhat, I mean, that somewhat will be, you know, grossly unacceptable. You know, I've got an anecdote to share with you guys and our listeners about uh, an engagement I had last week with some European think tankers and and, um, and government officials. But before I get, that'll talk about some of these um, potentially irreversible or uh, difficult to reverse changes we might make in Europe. Before I do that, I want to pull Chris Boland into this. Now, Chris, uh, your area of expertise, not necessarily Russia, but... Uh, the Middle East, North Africa, was one of the few areas, specifically Syria uh, and perhaps Iran, one of the few areas uh, specifically that the two presidents mentioned in their press conference where there might be an attempt to work more closely together in various ways. And so that's why I wanted to get your take. First of all, let me ask you, as I did with Nate, give me your thoughts broadly on what you think the trajectory of relations might be, and then let me know what your thoughts. Let us know what your thoughts are about uh, how that might play out in terms of specific policies or areas of strategy that, that you focus on. Yeah, I think I mean I can pick up on a you know couple themes both you and have made it, have hit on. I mean, one is in terms of kind of internal um, administration conflict in terms of what they view as appropriate U.S. policy and strategy. Um, And Syria is a classic case in point. Uh, The president, both as a candidate and as president, has been vehement in supporting the U.S. withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria. He just not does not see that as vital or in serving U.S. interest in the region. So he desperately wants to withdraw the 2,000 U.S. troops. We have mostly located northeastern Syria, uh, fighting the ISIS fight. But many in his administration, to include senior officials, actually view that U.S. presence as essential to defending U.S. interest in Syria and in the region writ large. And those interests would include stabilizing that portion of Syria, continuing the fight against ISIS, 
and actually pre presenting a physical obstacle to further Iranian expansion in Syria. So the president and senior members of the administration are kind of at loggerheads um, in terms of what a U.S. withdrawal would mean for U.S. interests. So that's one point I really think is worth um, bringing up. Another, I think, is, is kind of gets to uh, Nate's point about risk confusion, and that's evident in spades in terms of U.S. policy in Syria. But I would say it also doesn't, you know, you can't eliminate or just uh, ignore those risks either. I mean, there's very serious risk of U.S.-Russian military confrontation in Syria. Both forces are engaged in a military fight in Syria in very close proximity. We've actually had U.S. military attacks uh, kill dozens of Russian contractors or even Russian forces, depending on, you know, who you want to believe. So that prospect of confrontation is real. It's being managed by a U.S.-Russian coordination center in Jordan. So those risks can be managed, but they certainly can't uh, be eliminated. And I think one of the other key strategic tensions in Syria uh, is that Russia actually has what it views as vital national security interest engaged in Syria. That would be preserving its relationship with the Assad regime and securing its naval and air base access um, in Syria, which is absolutely critical in terms of their military ability to uh, deploy uh, throughout the region and in the uh, Mediterranean as well. So those are vital interests for Russia, whereas U.S. interests, I think, are a little bit less directly engaged, and that presents the problem of escalation that, you know, Nate mentioned as well. Um, because we have less interest, are we going to be willing to escalate to the next step if we want to confront uh, Russian activities in the region? Can I, hey, John, can I add something very, yeah. very quickly on Please. that? I mean, because I think it's, I think it's, I think Chris has absolutely hit the nail on the head. And I think this is, I don't mean to actually broaden the conversation at all, but I think this is a, this is precisely the point where the Russians and the Chinese have recognized U.S. vulnerability. I mean, there has been some, there has been a traditional, let's say 70 plus year commitment on the part of the United States to particular areas of the world that are largely distant from, let's say, Des Moines, Iowa. Um, and as a result of that, you know, we have, you know, been able because of the, because of the, the preponderance of, of options on the table have favored the United States. We have for a long time been able to record, rhetorically underscore and underline our commitment to these interests around the world. And then now, frankly, when put directly at risk by uh, either direct or gray zone, you know, provocation on the part of both the Russians and the Chinese, We've been forced to actually fundamentally revisit those interests in a way that we we have not had to for some time, and it seemed much more it seemed clearer when it was the Soviet Union when it was when it was a much more existential, widely universally perceived threat coming from the Soviet Union. Now, faced with both the Russians and the PRC attacking what aren't necessarily peripheral interests of the United States, but but are but are to a large segment of the American population potentially considered secondary interests of the United States, the Russians and the Chinese have been able to actually manipulate risk in a way that transfers most of the risk onto us, or at least the perceived risk onto us, and, and, and shifts risk off of their back substantially, and as a result of that, sort of outmaneuver the United States in ways that really makes, makes Amer the United States look 
you know, weak, feckless, whatever you want to, however you want to put it. And that, you know, fundamentally overall undermines our position with our allies around the world and our ability to affect outcomes going forward. You know, you've both mentioned uh, posture to uh, in various contexts. Of course, Chris, in terms of our forces in Syria, maybe elsewhere in the Middle East, uh, and Nate more broadly. Uh, last week at the War College, we had the privilege of hosting a group of about a dozen uh, European think tankers and government uh, practitioners, foreign policy practitioners from across Europe, uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, the South, the North, all over. And uh, they had come to the U.S. as part of the State Department program that brings over uh, European government officials and experts for uh, basically a listening and, and learning tour, an exchange of views. They spent some time in Washington. In this case, they came up to Carlisle, spent an afternoon with uh, myself and three or four other faculty members at the War College, and then went on to Philadelphia to go visit uh, the Foreign Policy Research Institute and uh, then headed home to Europe. Anyway, they had come to visit us in Carlisle, and they were rather shocked to hear myself and a couple of other War College faculty members talk about this is right after the press conference uh, with, with Putin. Uh, they were shocked to hear us talk about some of the repercussions that might ensue. They had just heard in Washington, I think, from a lot of their U.S. government interlocutors, rather reassuring messages at that time about, um, or along the lines of, hey, watch what we do, not what we say. You know, there was an article in the Post or the Times, I think, a week or two ago, about uh, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis this being his approach to reassuring European allies. You know, watch our policies, watch what we're doing. Uh, we're sending, for example, uh, Javelin anti-tank weaponry to Ukraine. Uh, don't pay so much attention to the tweets and to some of the other pronouncements, let's say. But when the, these Europeans last week asked us at the work college, hey, what are the implications? What could come out of this, this summit if there is indeed a reset? And one of the examples I gave was, well, you know, we might cut back on some of the larger scale uh, exercises that we hold in Europe. You may know that every now every three years, we have this so-called high visibility exercise in Europe. It involves maybe 20,000 troops across NATO, 20 to 30,000. Most of the NATO allies are involved. It's a huge event, usually takes place over the course of several weeks. We might curtail that or end it, or we might uh, turn off this rotational presence we have right now with an armored brigade combat team rotating from the U.S. with its equipment over to Poland and other Central European states for a period of nine months. That's an unaccompanied tour. There are no families to worry about. Uh, we have made relatively minimal infrastructure investments, no schools, this sort of a thing. It's the kind of a forward presence model that can be turned off relatively easily, and I suggested that that might be one of the things we do if there's a reset. And they were stunned by this, that uh, these may be some of the policy changes that could be uh, in the offing if there is going to be this reset. And I think that, Chris, some of the things you mentioned with regard to uh, changing our posture in Syria, you know, that would make our many of our Middle Eastern allies very nervous. I also think it would make many of our Middle Eastern allies nervous if we changed our posture in Europe. So I think there are lots of areas of policy where there's potential for change in the very short run that wouldn't require uh, dramatic shifts, shall we say, that would be relatively easy 
uh, to turn on or turn off. What do, what do you what do you guys think of that? Is that possible? Likely? What's your sense? I think that you know, in general, there's just a there's really there's been a pr- sort of profound naivete on the part of both the United States and the European allies as to the, as to the nature of the Russian sort of approach to us, right? Like I think that in general we were largely lulled the United States first and foremost, and then the Europeans and the allies to a certain extent sort of under the umbrella of the United States were lulled by primacy into a, a, into what I would call profound vulnerability. Right. And, and as a result of that, uh, we, we have been, or I mean, not as a result, but that, 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 that level of privacy really was predicated on our ability to move military forces around the world, our ability to have presence in some of these countries, et cetera. And I think that what we found is not only do changes in our posture affect the psychological impact of our guarantee, our security guarantees to our allies, et cetera. Right. So not only is that possible and will that be sort of an outcome, but also our posture in some of these countries is, is, uh, sort of virtually irrelevant as well because the, the the Russians have really found a way to basically get around all of that, right? Like they're not, the, the Russians right now, uh, you know, in their, in their current sort of very aggressive gray zone approach directly at the heart of the United States, right? Has proven that it just basically outflanks military power, right? So the way we operate, the way we operate to send security messages and to demonstrate commitment are not even effective, frankly, against how the Russians, how the Russians have transformed their ability to compete. It doesn't and matter. So I worry what, what, yeah, what I worry about, right. What I worry about is that instead of, instead of actually ourselves adapting to the Russian method of competition and actually beginning ourselves to compete back and campaign back effectively, and offensively, um, that we will instead sort of adopt, a, a, you know, what is very comfortable to us, which is moving chess pieces around on the chessboard, right? And and believing in some way that that's going to have that's going to have the kind of impact that we 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 want it to have on Moscow. And I just do not, I don't think that that actually is the right way to look at the problem. I think you're probably right, but it is, in fact, one of the things that Putin has complained about. Uh, and specifically the forward presence and uh, exercises. I mean, I think you're totally right that those I've described them as necessary but insufficient. Right? That it's absolutely it's, it's yeah. important yeah. to have that posture both for deterrence and assurance. But it's definitely not enough. It does not. Um, and this has been one of my big critiques of this uh, enhanced forward presence. These battle groups in the Baltic states—they're not tasked, yep. equipped, or manned to deal with any of the hybrid challenges that we are now sustaining. Chris, what's your sense of, of this, in, either in your geographic region of, of expertise or more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I'll stick to just kind of the Middle East. I mean, I think the withdrawal, a potential U.S. withdrawal from Syria, you know, would on a, on a lower level actually raise some eyebrows among the Arab leadership is, you know, is this an indication the U.S. is not going to be willing to stand up? Um, to Russia or Iran in the region and might be a further reason to kind of hedge their bets with um, with Russia. 
Um, I think, frankly, though, the bigger issue for Arab leaders is the coming confrontation with Iran, um, writ large in the region. So there are a lot of ways U.S. policy and actions could actually kind of compensate for a U.S. withdrawal from Syria. We've already done that to a large extent in terms of a massive arms sales um, of advanced military technology and equipment to allies, both Israel and Arab as well. So it provides them an independent capability to actually look out for their own interests. And we've certainly seen that in spades with Israeli actions on the Golan. I mean, they have confronted um, Iranian uh, forces and proxies in the area uh, directly and multiple times with, you know, direct kinetic action. Um, so we can kind of offset uh, those concerns, I think, by other means. Nate, let me turn back to you and the, and the implications for the uh, the gray zone fight here. You know, we've heard from the director of national intelligence, Dan Coates, that uh, all the indicators are blinking red, right, with regard to, and he said that in reference with regard to uh, Russian attempts to meddle in the t- upcoming 2018 midterm elections. What are the prospects, do you think, for that uh, conflict, that level of conflict, that gray zone fight to diminish? Are you concerned that uh, if there is a reset underway that we're going to uh, drop our guard too much? What, what's your sense here as, as uh, we look forward in the next several months? Well, I, you know, look, you are a far more qualified Putin watcher than I am. But what I do think is that we have definitely we have definitely exposed a huge vulnerability and that the Russians are more, you know, much more likely than not to exploit that vulnerability in the same way that you would in, you know, strict military science terms. We would just, where you will just you know, find the crack in the, find the crack in the adversary's defenses and then basically, you know, pour, pour forces through to, you know, wreak havoc in their rear. And, and I think that, Here's the one thing that just is really striking me is kind of a profound sea change in the way we have to look at competition with, with the Russians. I mean, you know, I went back and I, I looked at, and I'm writing a little short piece right now on, um, the, the, the interesting discoveries of the Hart Rudman Commission in 1999 and the fact that they made the pronouncement in 1999 amongst their findings that thousands of Americans would would potentially thousands of Americans are likely to die on American soil within the foreseeable future. Right. And they were talking at the time about, um, catastrophic terrorist attack, right. That the report was written in September, 1999, two years later, nine 11 attacks occur. And of course the, the, you know, the, the bureaucracy did not sort of adapt and did not was did not fine tune its horizon scanning in a way that was going to look for those kinds of problems because it has, Again, sort of a set of bi- traditional biases and conventions that just kind of keep rolling on. I fear we're at the, we're actually at the, at the same point now. I mean, there was someone who just, you know, I think it was, uh, Molly McHugh and, and, uh, Mark Hurtling just wrote that the piece about the, that this generation has just experienced its, its own Pearl Harbor, right? And I, I don't think that that's actually, um, I do not think that that is overstating the problem. I think that we, we are so, attuned to counting missiles and talking about WMD and, um, you know, worried about, you know, frankly, terrorist attack. We're so worried about the catastrophic physical damage 
of both military and non-military violent opponents to the United States and its interests, that we are actually really missing the one that's getting us. I mean, we are virtually, you know, we are physically under attack at the, at, at, at the, at sort of the, at the most complex level. And that's sort of between our ears. And, and, and if we don't actually rapidly sort of get our heads around that and recognize it for what it is, it's just going to get, it's, it's going to get worse. And I think, you know, the last point I'll make on that is that all the hybrid literature that started coming out right around 2006 and that I've been a part of, um, we missed the fact that they could actually, the, the most, the most lucrative target. And I think it's the same when you think about terrorism. The most lucrative target itself is actually us. It's not like we saw Georgia, we saw Ukraine, we saw, you know, some of the things going on in Europe and we thought, okay, the sort of hybrid gray zone, you know, points of vulnerability still lie, you know, distant from the United States when in fact, in reality, the most lucrative, most high payoff, you know, highest risk targets for the United States are in fact the United States itself. You know, that's not too far from what we learned in the counterterrorism fight in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? Where the center of gravity we eventually figured out was the population. It was the population of Afghans and Iraqis, right? And I think uh, you may be exactly right that that is exactly what we're fighting over in this case, and specifically the the American uh, body politic. Well, gentlemen, we have to end it, unfortunately, on that rather pessimistic note. But listeners, you can bet we're going to come back to this issue of uh, whether and how a potential reset is unfolding and what the implications may be. And uh, you can also bet we're going to have back uh, these two experts. So Professor Nate Fryer, Professor Chris Boland, thank you so much for joining us today for this discussion. Thanks, John. My great pleasure. pleasure. Thanks. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.